Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. I think it is necessary to support the proposal of the Ministry of Defense and the General Staff to conduct a partial military mobilization in Russia. I repeat, we are only talking about a partial mobilization. Russia is facing its largest anti-war protest since the early days of the Ukraine invasion after Russian President Vladimir Putin announces what he calls a partial military mobilization. Over 1,300 people have been arrested. Thousands have fled Russia. We'll go to Moscow for the latest. Then. Climate activists are holding a global climate strike today. We'll speak to Michaela Loach. We need to have climate justice, which requires us to uproot all of the systems of oppression that have caused this crisis. It's, of course, about non-proliferation of fossil fuels, but it's also about the abolition of these systems that cause so much harm. Finally, Model America will look at a new MSNBC documentary series re-examining the killing of Philip Pinnell. A 16-year-old black teenager shot dead by a white police officer in the city of Teaneck, New Jersey, in 1990. This was middle-class, model city America. A great place to raise a family in a very diverse environment. The fact of the matter is, Philip Pinnell was executed. We live in Teaneck. This doesn't happen in Teaneck. There was no reason for that cop to shoot him in his back. We'll speak to Philip Pinnell's mother and sister, as well as the director of the series Model America. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russia's holding referendums today in four regions of Ukraine as the Kremlin seeks to formally annex territory it seized after the February invasion. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's condemned the vote, which U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called a violation of the U.N. Charter and international law. On Thursday, officials in the Russian separatist-held city of Donetsk said Ukrainian shells killed six civilians, including a teenager. Meanwhile, Russian attacks on the southern city of Zaporizhia killed one person and left several others wounded. A prominent Russian human rights group says some anti-war protesters arrested this week are being ordered to enlist in the Russian military. More than 1,300 people have been arrested taking part in street protests after President Vladimir Putin announced a partial military mobilization to draft 300,000 new troops to fight in Ukraine. According to the group OVD Info, authorities threatened one protester with 10 years in jail if he refused to enlist. Meanwhile, thousands of Russian men are attempting to flee the country in order to avoid being drafted. Finland said Thursday it's considering barring most Russians from entering the country after a surge of border crossings. This is one Russian man who made it into Finland speaking with Reuters. 
Are you afraid that you might be drafted with the mobilization in Russia? Yes, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, why are you afraid? Uh, because uh, it uh, it very it very big mistake for Russia, for Europe, and of course for Ukraine citizens. And and how how old are you? Are you in the age that you could get drafted? Or yes, I'm 34. We'll go to Moscow after headlines. At the United Nations, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov stormed out of a U.N. Security Council meeting Thursday after accusing the United States and its NATO allies of becoming direct parties to the conflict in Ukraine. We have no confidence in the work of this body. For the past eight months, we were waiting for steps to be taken against impunity in Ukraine, and we don't expect anything more from this institution or a whole range of other international institutions. Foreign Minister Lavrov arrived 90 minutes late to the U.N. Security Council chambers and abandoned the debate after delivering his remarks. That prompted the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, to remark, quote, Russian diplomats flee almost as aptly as Russian soldiers. Today we are mostly focusing on crimes committed by Russian soldiers in Ukraine. But if anyone thinks they are the only one ready to kill, torture, rape, cut off genitals, they are wrong. Russian diplomats are directly complicit because their lies incite these crimes and cover them up. Earlier today, a United Nations commission reported it has evidence of war crimes committed by Russia and Ukraine, including widespread torture, sexual violence and attacks on civilian populations. Hurricane Fiona has swept past Bermuda after strengthening to a powerful Category 4 hurricane. Overnight, the storm brought high winds and heavy rain to the British territory as its eye passed about 200 miles west of the archipelago. Fiona is now heading north, expected to slam into Canada's eastern coast Saturday as a large and powerful post-tropical cyclone with hurricane-force winds. Meanwhile, most of Puerto Rico remains without power and clean drinking water five days after Fiona overwhelmed the island's fragile electrical grid. President Biden Wednesday declared a major disaster in Puerto Rico. Meanwhile, a sweltering heat wave pushed heat indexes in some parts of the island above 110 degrees Fahrenheit Thursday. In Nigeria, heavy floodings killed at least 300 people and displaced over 100,000 others since the rainy season began in April. This week, 13 Nigerian states were inundated after Cameroon released excess water from a dam and a tributary of the Niger River. Nigeria's northern food belt has been hit hard, with floodwaters washing over farms and destroying crops. Even before the floods, the U.N. predicted nearly 17 million Nigerians could be impacted by the global food crisis through the end of the year. In Washington, D.C., Capitol Police arrested 11 environmental and community leaders Thursday as they nonviolently blockaded the entrance to the Senate office building. The sit-in protest came a day after West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin unveiled a permitting reform bill that would speed federal review of energy projects. The legislation would limit environmental and community review of oil, gas, coal and mining projects, while fast-tracking approval of the 
Mountain Valley fracked gas pipeline and other fossil fuel projects. The bill has the support of both the White House and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who's pledged Senate passage ahead of a September 30th deadline to fund the government. On Thursday, protesters gathered outside Senator Schumer's office. This is David Galarza-Santa, lead organizer with Emergency Action on Puerto Rico. We are sick and tired of Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, being in cahoots and doing these side deals with one of the most destructive senators in the United States, Manchin. He stands to gain, as do the carbon industry and the fossil fuel industry that puts money in his pockets, even as they kill people around the world. And we say no. We'll talk about today's global climate strike later in the broadcast. Iranian authorities have cut off Internet access to the capital, Tehran, and other regions as protests over the death of a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman in police custody continue to spread. Iranian state TV reports as many as 26 people have died in the protests since Masa Amini's death last week. She was arrested by so-called morality police for allegedly leaving some of her hair visible in violation of an Iranian law requiring women to cover their heads. To see our coverage of the protests, go to democracynow.org. Senate Republicans have blocked legislation to expose the names of wealthy donors who give unlimited funds to so-called dark money organizations. On Thursday, all 49 Republican senators in attendance joined a filibuster of the Disclose Act. The bill would increase transparency in elections by requiring super PACs and other groups spending money on political ads to promptly disclose the names of donors who give more than $10,000. A government watchdog reports the U.S. Secret Service was tracking at least one neo-Nazi group and multiple individuals that planned to engage in violence and occupy the U.S. Capitol ahead of the January 6th insurrection. That's according to documents obtained by CREW, that's Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, which says this is just the latest evidence that the Secret Service failed to respond to threats ahead of the attempted coup. This comes as former President Donald Trump is openly embracing the far-right anti-Semitic QAnon movement. Adherents of the conspiracy theory believe Trump is secretly at war with a deep state cabal of elite Satan-worshipping Democrats who run a child sex trafficking operation. Last week, Trump shared a post on his Truth Social platform of him wearing a Q on his lapel and featuring two QAnon slogans. And on Saturday, Trump led a rally for Republican Senate candidate J.D. Vance in Ohio, where he set part of his speech to music that was almost identical to a theme song adopted by QAnon. Hundreds of Trump supporters responded with a one-fingered salute, a gesture that's drawn comparisons to the infamous salute used in Nazi Germany. Italian voters head to the polls for parliamentary elections Sunday when the leader of a neo-fascist party is widely expected to become Italy's most far-right leader since Medito Mussolini. Polls show Giorgia Maloney and her Brothers of Italy party in first place after a campaign laced with anti-immigrant rhetoric. This week, the party suspended a candidate from Sicily after he was discovered to have praised Adolf Hitler in online posts. 
The family of slain Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla has filed a complaint against Israel at the International Criminal Court. Shireen Abu Akhla was shot in the head May 11th while covering an Israeli raid on the Janin refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. Her family says she was deliberately targeted and killed by Israeli forces. Shireen's brother, Anton Abu Akhla, spoke with Al Jazeera from The Hague. This is the least we can do for Shireen. Uh, we have to pursue justice for her in The Hague, in the ICC, in other courts. Whatever we have to do, we will do it to ensure accountability for Shireen and for her killing. Any person shooting at the press is intentionally trying to kill and assassinate someone in the field doing their job. And Boeing has agreed to pay $200 million to settle charges it misled investors over the safety of its 737 MAX jet, which was involved in two deadly crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia that killed all 346 people on board both flights. As part of the settlement with the Securities and Exchange Commission, Boeing and its former chief executive, Dennis Muhlenberg, will admit no wrongdoing over the fatal crashes in 2018 and 19. Michael Stumo, the father of Ethiopian Airlines crash victim Samia Rose Stumo, said in a statement, quote, this settlement is protection for Boeing rather than justice. It's a continuation of Boeing evading accountability and transparency. To see our interview with Michael Stumo, visit our website, democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A prominent human rights group says some anti-war protesters arrested this week are being ordered to enlist in the Russian military. More than 1,300 people were arrested taking part in protests after Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a partial military mobilization to draft 300,000 new troops to fight in Ukraine. According to the group OVD Info, authorities threatened one protester with 10 years in jail if he refused to enlist. Meanwhile, thousands of Russian men are attempting to flee the country in order to avoid being drafted. Many fear Russia will conduct a full mobilization drafting men who have no ties to the military. We go now to Moscow, where we're joined by Anna Durbovolskaya. She worked as the executive director of the Memorial Human Rights Center in Moscow, which was shut down by the Russian government. She's now a freelance NGO consultant, as in the process of establishing her own human rights organization. Anna, welcome back to Democracy Now! under these very difficult circumstances. Can you start off by responding to these reports that— after, what, something like 1,300 people have been arrested uh, in these anti-war protests, that a number are being forced to enlist or face long prison sentences. Is that your understanding? Uh, hello, Amy, and thank you for having me back. Uh, yes, that is uh, my understanding and understanding of everyone in Russia. Uh, those detentions happened over uh, uh, one day, basically, when the mobilization was announced. And the majority of people, as usually, were detained in Moscow and St. Petersburg as the biggest cities. So... If you can talk about this level of protest, we haven't seen anything like it in Russia since the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
um, a lot of people are actually being uh, not very happy about the level of protest. A lot of people are being disappointed, saying that uh, people are not protesting against the, the special military operation in Ukraine itself, but they are protesting against uh, partial mobilization and uh, saying that Russians are too afraid to go in the streets, which is partially true. Uh, but we we have to also remember that a lot of people are being uh, pushed out from the country. A lot of oppositional leaders are either being imprisoned or, again, uh, forced to leave Russia. And uh, right now, uh, all those protests happening, they are very grassroots, very disorganized uh, they are immobilized, meaning that people are just going in the streets when they feel the urge and feel the need. So, um, yeah, a lot of people are just saying that it's it's not enough and are calling to more uh, more groups going in the streets and saying no to no to war and no to mobilization. But the fact is that uh, we have what we have, and uh, actually people are voting with uh, them leaving the country, which to my mind is is a good solution. We see that nobody is actually going to. Uh, willing to enlist in the army and uh, everyone preferred to leave, even those people who supported what was going on. On Thursday, one Russian man said he was called up to enlist despite having no military experience. This is what he said. Hello, my name is Viktor Begreyev. I'm a candidate of economic sciences. I work as an IT specialist in Spurbank. Yesterday I got this notice, according to which today I need to present myself for revision of my military registration. Today, on September 22nd, 2022, when I came, I was given the notice, according to which today at 1500 I need to depart for the army. Here you are. I have never served in the army, was never a conscript, have no military professions, was never a reservist officer training. My health changed for the worse after I got my military registration document, but I was told here that my health is subject for call-up in a period of war. Anna Dubrovolskaya, how dangerous is it for this man, Victor, to fully identify himself, show this conscript call-up, this piece of paper, um, and talk about uh, his own situation? Uh, you know, it's actually a very interesting story because after he personally, he, uh, he made his story public, uh, his uh, summon was uh, declined. So he's no longer supposed to go to the army right now because his story was uh, so vocal and uh, he spoke about it so openly. So he will be uh, kept uh, without military service for a while. But I'm afraid this is not the, the option for many people because uh, right now we see the reports on like already dozens of hundreds of people receiving receiving uh, summons and being drafted to the army. Of course, if uh, even if all of them will start uh, publishing their stories, it's uh, rather impossible that uh, military authorities will step back and just uh, keep everyone in their positions and in their homes. So, yeah, a lot of people are trying to protest. Uh, there is an information that some guy jumped out of the window from the military office when he was already there and tried to flee uh, the city he was. So, yeah, people will be trying to save their lives uh, with any tools uh, they can. Are women drafted? Uh, there is already information about some women being called, uh, mostly nurses, uh, medical doctors, or some women who were already previously in the army because of their military background. But not, uh, it's not common mobilization for women yet, hopefully. 
Um, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, yesterday at the United Nations, stormed out of the U.N. Security Council meeting after accusing the U.S. and its NATO allies of becoming direct parties to the conflict in Ukraine. This is what he said. We have no confidence in the work of this body. For the past eight months, we were waiting for steps to be taken against impunity in Ukraine, and we don't expect anything more from this institution or a whole range of other international institutions. Everything I've said today simply confirms that the decision to conduct the special military operation was inevitable. We have said this more than once. We've provided a huge number of facts which show how Ukraine prepared to play the role of anti-Russia as a staging ground to create threats against Russia's security, and I can assure you that we will never accept this. Thank you very much. Your response to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who then stormed out of the UN Security Council meeting. Uh, it's it's very difficult to uh, respond anything, but um, it is really a pity that uh, UN, that Council of Europe, that uh, uh, OEC are losing their power and their influence all over the world, and they simply have looks like it, they simply have no tools to deal with conflicts uh, like this one, uh, like what is happening right now, and unfortunately, their consequences will be horrible. Anna, I realize it's difficult for you to talk as you speak to us from Moscow. I wanted to ask what happened to uh, Memorial, to your human rights center in Moscow. Uh, yeah, Memorial was uh, shut down by uh, Russian government for multiple violations of the foreign agents law. It was the law which was introduced back in 2012, and uh, it basically uh, limited the ability of uh, non-governmental organizations to speak out publicly against human rights violations while they were receiving some foreign donations. Uh, because it was the case for many human rights NGOs, uh, a lot of them have been shut down or decided to close themselves. So Memorial was, uh, um, both Memorial organizations were working for quite a long time, but uh, uh, in November last year, it was already clear that the uh, de decision will be not in our favor and the legal entity in Russia finally was uh, closed, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But uh, the organization will continue to work, uh, probably not in Russia, probably somewhere else. I'm just no longer with the team. Why do you stay? in Moscow, and do you feel personally threatened? Um, I don't feel personally threatened yet. I had some um, security incidents which were, uh, to my mind, not so scary. Uh, I realized that um, leaving somewhere means that, uh, well, if I go, for example, to Georgia or Armenia, I will be one more Russian person there, and all those countries are welcoming so many Ukrainian refugees, so I think it's way more important for them to welcome Ukrainians first, and only then, if they have some spots left, give them to Russians and to uh, other political refugees. So right now, when it's not that horrible for me yet, and if I can be still helpful to uh, some people here, including the Ukrainian refugees in Russia, my decision is to stay here for as long as I can. Are you going out in the streets? Uh, no, I'm not going out in the streets. Uh, it was my principal decision uh, dated quite some years ago that bec well, because I was responsible for um, for the NGO at the moment, I couldn't go in the streets because if I were detained, uh, 
uh, the consequences for me and for the whole organization, for the team will be not very bright. Right now, I think I'm, again, more helpful if I stay at home and uh, continue my job rather than if I will be detained because then uh, immediately my risks will, will grow because I'm just not just a, some person be detained. I'm assuming if I go on the streets and get arrested, then I will be harassed even further, even more if I'm, than I already am. Anna, earlier this month, the European Union, in retaliation against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, ended privileged access for Russian citizens by increasing visa fees and making the application process more difficult. Does this worry you as Russian men and women try to free the mobilization, try to flee the mobilization? Uh, yes, it is very worrisome, and I'm uh, on vice versa. I'm hoping that the United States will do the opposite and will be uh, giving more visas to Russian citizens because. Uh, Clearly, uh, well, we understand all the security concerns of European Union, but it's really a mistake to get Russian civil society even more isolated uh, than it already is. It is crucial for, for all of us to be able to travel, to meet our colleagues, to meet uh, independent journalists and be able to speak openly. Uh, of course, a lot of people are have left already and will be leaving because they are afraid or because they don't want to go to army. And having a visa in their pocket is something really to be assured that uh, nothing bad will happen to them and they will not end up in Russian prison or in the battlefield, which is much, much worse. So I really hope that this decision with visas can be changed to the better sometimes. And finally, what do you make of these votes on the referendums um, uh, that are taking place? Um, I'm afraid that this is already a made decision. We all saw what was happening in 2014 with Crimea. It was quite predictable. And this is quite predictable as well. Uh, and unfortunately for men in those territories, this partial mobilization will be even more uh, dangerous because they are Ukrainians and they consider Ukraine as their allies. And now they will be obliged to go to Russian army and to fight with the uh, Ukrainian um, Ukrainian soldiers, basically, which is a huge tragedy. Well, Anna, we want you to stay safe. Anna Dubrovalskaya has uh, served as executive director of Memorial, the human rights center in Moscow, before it was shut down by the Russian government. Currently a freelance NGO consultant in the process of establishing her own human rights group, speaking to us from Moscow, from Russia. Coming up... It's climate strike, climate activists holding a global climate strike today. We'll speak with Michaela Loach. She was one of three claimants who took the UK to court for giving taxpayers money to oil and gas companies. Stay with us.
Don't Cry by Jay Dilla. Here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Climate strike. That's the cry of youth climate activists today to urge world leaders to do more to confront the climate emergency. This comes as a third of Pakistan is underwater. Severe drought in the Horn of Africa has brought Somalia to the brink of famine, and Puerto Rico remains largely without power after a devastating hurricane. Earlier this week, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres blasted fossil fuel companies for their role in the climate emergency. The fossil fuel industry is feasting on hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies and windfall profits, while households' budgets shrink and our planet burns. Excellencies, let's tell it like it is. Our world is addicted to fossil fuels, and it's time for an intervention. We need to hold fossil fuel companies and their enablers to account. We're joined now by Michaela Loach, leading youth climate activist taking part in today's climate strike, one of three claimants who took the U.K. government to court for giving taxpayers money to oil and gas companies. She's also helped lead the fight against the Combo oil field off the coast of Scotland. Michaela was born in Jamaica, grew up in Britain, is a medical student at the University of Edinburgh and co-host of the Yikes podcast. She's joining us today day from New York in the midst of this climate week. Michaela, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Um, if you can start off by talking about the significance of this climate strike today. Yeah, thank you so much, Amy, for having me here. Um, today, the climate strike, especially in New York, is is very significant because we've just had um, Climate Week New York. We've just had the UN General Assembly happening this week. Um, and as kind of usual, there hasn't been enough um, happening. There have been a lot of incredible things that have happened, like, for example, President um, Gustavo Petrov of Colombia um, gave an incredible address um, on the floor of the UN, really calling out um, how much um, kind of global North nations are still inflicting imperialism and control over global South nations. And also we saw Vanuatu be the first nation state to call on the floor of the UN for um, an international fossil fuel treaty to be um, signed. So that means a treaty that would mean that all kinds countries would be signing it and saying they don't want um, to have more fossil fuels. So those kind of things are really important. And I think that the strike can be an, uh, a pressure from the outside. I I struggle with um, a lot of the UN stuff because of how much it can be very like reformist um, and not really be going to the roots of the problems that exist. Um, and that's why I think I think these kind of strikes and this pressure can can maybe shift things a bit more. Talk about your lawsuit against the UK government. Yeah, so um, the UK government... Um, Previously, so now they've re recently changed um, the kind of tax regime there a little bit. But previously, the North Sea, which is just off the co coast of Scotland, um, was the most profitable place in the world to extract oil and gas. And that's because the government made this deliberately really profitable um, tax regime where basically um, oil and gas companies were being paid to pollute. So they were being given huge amounts of money from the public funds um, to promote them in polluting. They weren't paying any tax. Companies like Shell and BP didn't pay any tax on multiple years um, on their operations there. They were actually being paid more money than they were paying. It was, um, it's kind of ridiculous. And so we took the UK government to court around that, around this regime, the fact that, um, yeah, the fact that they've made it so profitable for these companies. Shell announced it was scrapping plans for Combo in December of 2021. 
Um, mm-hmm. You were one of the leaders of the protests. And I was wondering if you could explain what that is. But today's headline on the website Energy Voice says government to fast track five North Sea oil and gas fields, including Cambo and Merlach. Yeah, so um, basically, uh, now it was last year, we found out that the Cambo oil field was being set for approval. Cambo was a ginormous, well, still is a ginormous oil field, thankfully has not been extracted from yet. Um, and at the time, it was going to be approved in the next couple of months. And kind of in the UK, when oil fields like this had come up, um, there hadn't really been that much resistance to them. And what we did is we formed this huge campaign. It was like not just myself, like a bunch of wonderful people who came together um, to resist this field because um, it was so massive and would have such an impact. We managed to stop it from being approved. Shell dropped out, which was a historic um, feat for a campaign. But you're right that now what's happening is that the new um, Prime Minister of the UK, Liz Truss, previously worked for Shell, and she is now trying to push even more oil and gas through, fields through, like she's trying to bring Cambo back, but also kind of even more worryingly than Cambo, um, is Rosebank, is this new um, oil field um, that is the biggest one in the North Sea. And if it was extracted from, the emissions from this field alone would be more than every low-income country combined, just from one field. And um, the new kind of administration in the UK are trying to push through all of these fields. Um, We really have to stop them. And that's why a coalition of groups have been coming together to try and kind of take it from every angle and, and show that we cannot have any new fossil fuels if we want a livable future. But it is truly amazing. I mean, these are this is one of the most powerful natural oil companies, but companies in the mm. world shell. Do you feel it was your protests, the protests of so many, that stopped them in their tracks last December? For sure. I mean, even even in like industry articles, like oil and gas industry articles, um, they were writing saying that it was because of public pressure and protests, which is what caused them to have to drop out, because it actually made. Um, developing Cambo not financially viable because of how many different like insurers were dropping out about how much pro- protest there was about how much disruption there had been there was so many different tactics that we used it was we tried to have like a concerted media campaign but also there was direct action like we occupied the UK government building um, Greenpeace activists actually blocked um, used kayaks to block the port where they were trying to go out and start the extraction it was a ton of different and we also challenged Shell's CEO at um, Ted Countdown's event um, we really tried to get them at every angle to make it that it would just be too much of a nuisance for them to try and do this. And that's why I think that we can be so powerful as people when we come together and put that pressure on. Um, and Cambo was an example of, of that public pressure really causing a huge change. A new report finds there are now over 215,000 individuals worldwide who are worth more than $50 million. That's mm. an increase of 46,000 people over the past year. That's according to Bank Credit Suisse. Michaela Loach, you recently spoke at the Gates Foundation's annual event, where you surprised many in the audience by saying, I think billionaires shouldn't exist. And I think the climate crisis was caused by capitalism. Elaborate. Yeah, it was a big um, decision to to even go into that space. I usually avoid these spaces because I don't agree with them. I don't believe that um, billionaire philanthropic capitalism will save us. So the idea that the same people who've caused this crisis should be in charge of the solutions just doesn't make sense to me. And I think that what it means is that um, these people will only choose solutions that allow their companies to continue to profit and extract and continue capitalism and allow capitalism to continue, which has got us into this mess. So I don't think it can solve it. Um, but I decided to kind of go into the discomfort of that space to challenge it because these spaces rarely get challenged. People think that 
Bill Gates is great because he donates a ton of his money or has a foundation, but how much is him having that control um, having actually maybe a negative impact um, on our like collective liberation and, and the paths that we're taking? Um, so I decided to come into that space and, and challenge that. And people um, gasped. I, I think people were quite shocked um, that there was someone who was actually kind of speaking that truth to power. I mean, there were like secret service agents everywhere protecting um, Gates. Um, but it was, I think it was a really impactful moment. And the amount of people that came up to me afterwards actually and spoke to me and said that they've been thinking these things, but haven't been able to say them because their work is reliant on funding from from the foundation, um, made me feel like it was the right thing to do in the, in the end. If you can talk more about your activism and your um, intersectional uh, approach to everything from climate to, well, as you put it, the climate crisis intersects with various oppressive systems such as white supremacy, racism, migrant injustice, and the refugee crisis. As you've said, it's not a refugee crisis. It's a crisis of empathy. Link all these different issues, Michaela. Yeah, for sure. I think if we look back at how this climate crisis started, so we're in this crisis because um, fossil fuels and nature have been completely extracted and destroyed um, to make profit and to um, kind of continue expansion of economies um, in the global north in particular. And this kind of this process of extracting from the earth and this process of like um, imperialism and colonialism started yeah, with the colonial projects that began. Um, BP's original, so British Petroleum's original name was actually the first exploitation company. Um, Shell were also involved with British colonialism inherently when um, actually the UK sold Nigeria to, um, to Shell um, back many years ago and then began their exploitation there. So it is inherently connected to white supremacy, to colonialism, to, to capitalism, to all these systems. Um, and therefore, if we're going to tackle this crisis, we have to tackle these root causes. Otherwise, we'll just be replicating the same oppressive systems. Um, but maybe they'll, they'll look a bit green, but it won't actually have, have, have solved the real problem. As I think as a medic as well, I see it as um, we don't want to just put a Band-Aid on it. We don't just want to be treating the symptoms. We have to treat the kind of real thing that's causing um, the illness in the first place. Um, and so what we need to do is yeah, really go to those root, those root systems and realize that actually, for me, that gives a lot of hope because it's like if if the climate crisis is caused by all of these systems, then to tackle it, we have to treat these systems. And therefore, we can actually create a better world for all of us. It's not just about stopping complete disaster. It could also be about building things and, and, and building a better world for all of us, which I think could be really hopeful. Do you feel like you're winning? I think we are. I have, well, I have to believe that. <laughs> I don't know how much. Um, I don't even know if that's true, but um, I have to believe that we're winning because more and more people are rising up. I think I look especially at, at Latin America uh, um, and I was living in Colombia during the election of Francia Marquez and, and Gustavo Petro. And Francia Marquez is someone who I have um, respected for so long and whose climate activism is incredible. And that election um, was won by the people. It was won by grassroots campaigns. Um, and it shows if, if Colombia can like overthrow elitist rule, a 200 years elitist rule, um, then think about what all of us can do if we realize our own power and we come together. And I think more and more people are realizing that and more oil fields are being stopped, more pipelines are being blocked. Um, and I think that we can win, but it will require all of us to come together and actually and take that into our own hands. Finally, in 2020, Forbes Global Citizen and BBC Women's Hour named you one of the most influential women in the UK climate movement. Explain who influenced you most and who inspires you today? Who? Um I think that I'm really inspired by Angela Davis's work and like abolitionists and Audre Lorde. So people who maybe you wouldn't see as um 
as as climate people as such. But um, I think that abolitionist work is what has has really um, moved me to be where I am today and doing the work that I'm doing today. Um, this idea that we should not idea, but this reality that we should challenge absolutely everything um, and not only be taking things down, but building things too, has really um, inspired my work and inspired what I do. And um, I try and hold kind of those people and also Nanny of the Maroons in Jamaica, who was um, a freedom fighter there. I try and hold them in my heart as I'm doing the work that I'm doing and remind myself, like, what would they do and how can I challenge things more? Well, I want to thank you so much, Michaela Loach, for joining us, climate justice activist, co-host of the Yikes podcast, among many other things. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you so much. Next up, Model America. We look at a new MSNBC documentary series, Reexamining the Killing of Philip Pinnell, a 16-year-old black teenager shot dead by a white police officer in the suburb of Teaneck, New Jersey, in 1990, more than 30 years ago, and the lessons it has for today. Stay with us. And for those who were just listening to this, we were showing the pictures of Philip Pinnell growing up in his 16 short years of life. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. We spend the rest of the hour examining how riots that erupted over a police killing three decades ago offer important lessons for the Black Lives Matter movement today. It was April 10th, 1990, when a black 16-year-old boy named Philip Pinnell was fatally shot in the back by a white Teaneck, New Jersey police officer. Racial tensions flared in the suburb that had been seen until then as an idyllic and diverse racial utopia by some. The case made international headlines with civil rights leaders, including the Reverends Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, joining in demonstrations calling for justice. In a minute, we'll speak with Philip Pinnell's mother and sister. But first, this is the opening to a new four-part docuseries on MSNBC called Model America that features their story. I am Natasha Pinnell. My 16-year-old brother was slain 30 years ago in Teaneck, New Jersey. And I'm going to address the United States of America. There's no doubt that night. It was a textbook procedure. I had no choice. I was forced to take a life. I was a white cop who shot a black 16-year-old. I would like to address all law enforcement 
across the country and around the world. Honor the oath. Our other officers kept repeating, you did the right thing, you had no choice. It was a good shoot. There was confusion and a groundswell of rage in Teaneck, New Jersey, where police shot a 15-year-old suspect to death. This was middle-class, model city America. We live in Teaneck. This doesn't happen in Teaneck. It wasn't the utopia I thought it was for many people. We endured this pain for 30 years, and we're back here again. On my honor, I will never betray my integrity or the public trust. The fact of the matter is, Philip Pennell was executed. I don't care how many grand juries he impanels, the truth is the truth is the truth. It's time we speak, it's time we let those in power know that we're not going to take it anymore. I will always maintain the highest ethical standards and uphold the values of my community. My shooting will never go away. It's with me every day of my life. He had a gun! He had a gun! He had a gun! That's the opening to Model America, the four-part docu-series on MSNBC. Part one aired this past Sunday, part two this Sunday. For more, we're joined by two of the people it featured, uh, Mrs. Thelma Pennell-Dantzler, the mother of Philip Pennell, president of the Philip Pennell Foundation, and Natasha Pennell, the sister of Philip. Also with us from Los Angeles is co-director Donnie Goffstein, who's a former Teaneck resident. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Natasha, talk about that tragic, traumatic day. And I actually hate to bring it up 32 years later, when your brother was killed. And what unfolded after that for your family, uh, for the community, as you sought justice, and what it means for this documentary series to come out 32 years later, as the Black Lives Movement continues the fight against police brutality and killings and racism. Well, first off, I would like to thank Democracy Now! for having both my mom and I on. Um, that night was before I um, learned that my brother was shot and killed by uh, Teaneck police officer Gary Spath. I was really, really excited and happy. You know, I was expecting my brother to come home. I had the house party tape, uh, which is a movie that he wanted to see. And so I was just, you know, really happy. And when I heard a bunch of footsteps running up the stair, the stairway, I just ran to the door excited. And I thought that I was going to swing the door open and see my brother, Clint. And in fact, I saw a bunch of like puzzled faces and people um, in the hallway were crying. And one of the kids kicked the stairwell and I was like, you know, where's my brother? I didn't see him. So I called from my mother. And then they all came in and they said, you know, Miss Pennell, Miss Pennell, Phil's been shot. So my mother was straightening her hair. She dropped the straightened comb. She ran in. She said, where, where? And then they one set yelled out in the crowd, he was shot in the leg. And then my mother was like, in the leg? Why? And then somebody else, a faint voice said, he's been shot in the back. And then that's when my mother kind of was like, oh, in the back. And so we rushed to the hospital. 
And we saw like a bunch of police officers out there, a bunch of relatives and my brother's friends and everybody looked distraught and was crying. And then when they brought us inside the ER, they, um, the doctors came to both my mom and I, and then my mother was like, I just want to see my son. Where is he? And the doctor said, Miss Pinnell, we tried everything, but he didn't make it. So after that, uh, we saw his um, body and things like that. And, you know, it was just like, to me, it just was a bad dream, you know, the way everything played out. And then the, a day later, we had a candlelight visual in honor of my brother, um, and then there was a riot that ensued because it was actually provoked by the police department. The Teaneck Police Department wouldn't allow us to, to move. And after they barricaded us in, um, that's when the crowd became angry and then the riot um, kind of broke out. And then days later, um, that Saturday, we actually started marching. Um, and from 1990, four days after my brother was killed, up until 92, we marched throughout the trial, and here we are 32 years later, and it's still happening, and I'm still marching in honor of my brother and countless others who lost their lives by the hands of police violence. Thelma Pinnell Dantzler, um, you're Philip's mom. Um, you called him Clem. Uh, we, it is now 32 years later, and I still offer you both um, our condolences uh, on the death of your son. When you learned what happened, and then you saw the level of response, the protests at the ground level in Teaneck, if you could talk about why you lived in Teaneck, and while others were saying, these are outsiders coming in, you were saying, quiet doesn't work. Yes, we, uh, I moved to Teaneck because uh, it was a quiet town, and uh, I loved Teaneck, and my, my son loved Teaneck and my daughter. So that's why we uh, bought a house in Teaneck, New Jersey. And when this happened to us, I never thought that uh, it was racism in Teaneck until this happened to my son. And I know there was a lot of people there, you know, talking, saying that we was destitute. They was calling us all kinds of names. Name it, they call us those names. But I do want to say this to Spath. He said never a doubt. He kept saying never a doubt that it was a good shooting. He lied and said my son was reaching for a gun. It's going to be proven, proven to the world how he got on the witness stand and perjured himself, and so did Blanco, that his hands was clearly, clearly in the air when he shot him with a six-foot fence around him. So once this evidence come out, it should be something, I don't care how many years it takes, that for a police officer or anyone to lie on the oath on the witness stands. They should be prosecuted. They should be punished for what they did, for putting us through all of this pain for 32 years of my life. I knew he didn't try to shoot back, but to prove it, but to prove it, to see it with my own eyes, that's believable to me. And I hope the world see it. Just see what this man did to my life and my daughter's life and my family's life. He destroyed me from that. But with God and with prayer, I'm here to see this day. It have came, and I thank God for that. And a lot of 
my Ken people have gone on home and never seen that, that the truth came out about their niece, their cousins, family. They never seen this, but I see it. And I'm the mother. And I thank God that I'm here to see that. I want to turn to a clip from the second episode of MSNBC's docuseries Model America about your family's ordeal and the fight for justice. Teaneck residents came to town council meetings to demand that more blacks be added to the police force. But no aspect of the racial issue gripped the community's emotions more than the charge that white Teaneck cops were abusing the town's black youth. What had happened to me in an event August 24th, back in 1989, I was harassed by two officers who held me at gunpoint, pushed their gun into my eye. Immediately after that incident, I went to the police station to fill out a report, but I was denied by the lieutenant in charge to fill out the report. He told me to get the hell out of the police station. It was the first time I really heard an African-American couple say to me, we had to give our kids the talk. They were worried about their children, primarily males, how to deal with the police. These were things I had never heard before. As a mother of three young black men, raising them as boys, you know, taking them to the mall. They were going to the mall with their friends, their black and white friends. But I always had to make sure I told my friends, leave your backpack in the car. Don't keep your hands in your pocket. Make sure you have your wallet. If you're talking, make sure you greet people, look them in the eye, you know, so they don't look like shifty or anything like that. Now, I'm sure that it was in reverse. If a white mom was doing the drop off, she didn't have to have that conversation. That last voice you heard was Javon Romney Rice, current Teaneck Town Council member. Um, <clears throat> I want to bring Donnie Goffstein into this conversation. Um, you are the co-director of this film, this docuseries, Model America, and you also lived in Teaneck. Talk about how this series, extremely powerful series, came into being. Sure. Um, thanks for having me, Amy. Um, so I— Grew up in Teaneck. I was born uh, two years after Philip Pinnell was killed, and um, my parents were divorced. They lived on opposite sides of the town. Um, my mom lived in the northwest quadrant, which was predominantly Jewish. My dad lived in the northeast quadrant, which is predominantly black. And um, uh, I remember walking home um, with my dad one day, and he pointed to the yellow house on corner of Intervale and Teaneck Road and uh, told me the story of what happened there uh, right before I was born. And um, I had always been some a story that I was intrigued by. It was something uh, I realized not a lot of people talked about in Teaneck. Um, and I always wondered why and um, wanted to understand um, this incident. So it had been uh, something in the making since I was a kid. Um, uh, it didn't, I didn't really um, develop it and uh, start developing it into a documentary until um, after Mike Brown was killed in uh, Ferguson uh, in 2015. Um, and I noticed a lot of parallels between um, those cases and uh, started researching and um, went back to Teaneck, interviewed anybody I could uh, with like a 5D and uh, um, uh we yeah I uh, met with the Pinnells um, in 2018 and um, spoke with Natasha and Thelma and uh, I think they were uh, initially skeptical. I uh, know they felt mistreated or exploited by the press in the past, um, and uh, they you know weren't sure about my intentions or motivations behind it. But um, at, at initially, but um, after developing that relationship with them, getting to know them. Um, 
I think uh, they felt more comfortable with me. And um, in 2020, uh, Natasha called me up um, and after George Floyd was killed and um, uh, told me that there was going to be a march in Teaneck. Uh, it was co-sponsored by the Philip Pinnell Foundation and invited me to come film if I wanted it. So I, uh, it was um, sort of um, uh, just uh, strange how it all came full circle and George Floyd sort of brought into the present day. And um, I filmed that march and continued uh, following them throughout um, the 2020. And um, it was, yeah, yeah. Natasha, if you can talk about your decision, and also I want to ask um, uh, Mrs. Pinnell Dantzler the same thing. Here is this white guy, also a Teaneck resident, who had approached you and approached you. You didn't say yes originally. No, I didn't say yes, because as Donnie stated, I was, um, you know, kind of blindsided by other press that actually was offering the same, wanting to report on the story and and, and things like that, just to shed light on police uh, brutality cases. And so when he came to me, the first, uh, my first initial thought was like, well, here it is, a young kid, because I, I too, have a 20-something-year-old. Um, my son is 23. And so Donnie's not that much older than my son. So I was like, well, you're coming here to do, quote-unquote, a documentary about my brother, but you weren't even born, you know? You weren't even born in 1990, so what could you possibly report uh, about it? And so we met a few times out in the community. Um, he was just—he just took time, and that kind of um, made me feel like, okay, well, maybe he has good intentions. Maybe he has uh, a, something in him that he really is compelled to the story and wants to get the truth out. So when I started meeting with him more, I said, okay, well, this is like maybe the spawn or like a new beginning, if you will, to exposing the truth, finally, uh, after all this time. I wanted to ask Mrs. Pinnell Dantzler, um, you have Gary Spath, who was acquitted of manslaughter. Um, you, in a civil suit, got $200,000. Gary Spath got $40,000 every year for the rest of his life, which comes out, what, over a million dollars. I was wondering your response to this. And if you want this case reopened, uh, the feds coming in perhaps and investigating your son's civil rights being violated, not to mention his death. Yes, because when this happened, uh, I was shocked that uh, they got him off with nothing at all. So I was distraught. And uh, so I feel that if anyone get punished, I don't care, like I said, how many years it, it takes for the truth to come through, true. They should, uh, they should take them and what they did wrong, and they should be punished just like anyone else. Because I work in New Jersey. We pay his tax. So I'm paying his tax for killing my son. That's, 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 that's terrible. We paying his tax for killing my son, shot him in the back. Back in the days, I thought that was murder when you shoot a person in the back with their hands up. He surrendered. He surrendered. But he said he was reaching for a gun. And I carried this for 32 years. How, how could he say that he carried this all this time? It was a, it was a good shoot. How was a good shoot? How, how could he say things like that? 
and he got children, then raised them. And they got—he got grandchildren. Uh, Mrs. Alma Pinnell Dantzler and Natasha Pinnell, we're going to continue this conversation and post online at democracynow.org. And Donnie Goffstein, thanks so much for being with us. The series is called Model America on MSNBC. I'm Amy Goodman.